Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. The U.S.'s NATO ally Turkey is fighting the U.S.-backed fighters that beat ISIS. We'll think through what's happening in Syria. Then we recall what happened when Gandhi put out the call to quit India. And as Indian immigrants arrived in the U.S., so did their food. We'll hear about the origins of India House, a fixture in Chicago's restaurant scene. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. What comes after the fall of ISIS was always going to be a quandary for the U.S. and its allies. And now push is coming to shove in northeast Syria as we see Turkish forces fighting U.S.-backed Kurdish forces. We're going to talk about what's happening now with Helena Cobbin. She's a Middle East analyst and writer. She's president of Just World Educational. Nice to talk with you again, Helena. Good to be back with you, Jerome. You know, the Trump administration seems to have been presented with an interesting moment here and an interesting choice. And their inclination is to leave the U.S. troops in northeastern Syria with these Kurdish fighters, establish a security force and hold the territory in northeastern Syria. And obviously there are people who don't like that. And that includes our friends in NATO. Uh, Turkey. How did the U.S. and Turkey get so not on the same page on this? Well, you probably recall that these actual U.S. troops were sent for a specifically anti-ISIS mission. And as you noted, that is now winding down. So the administration did have a choice, could have withdrawn the troops, but chose not to. I suppose that's in line with a lot of the sort of knee-jerk militarism that exists in the administration and Trump surrounding himself with generals and Tillerson, the Secretary of State, not having any government experience of diplomacy, though no doubt he had a lot when he was running an oil company. But he has really thinned the ranks of expertise in the State Department. And you can see that in a decision like this, because somebody should have told him that our key allies there in northeastern Syria, this Kurdish fighting force called the YPG, is just an offshoot of this other Kurdish organization, very well-established military political organization in Turkey called the PKK. So the PKK is on the State Department's list of foreign terrorist organizations. It's amazing to look at what's going on today on the ground because there's a report that one of these YPG fighters A woman went and did a suicide mission and blew herself up in front of Turkish forces. So you've got U.S.-backed fighters blowing themselves up in front of Turkish forces. You know, and the Turkish forces, it should be noted, first of all, there are actual armed forces from Turkey there in Afrin. This is in the sort of the the little western enclave of Kurdish-controlled area inside Syria. So there are actual Turkish army forces, and there are also allied with them 
some many fighters from this thing called the Free Syrian Army, which are directly supported by the U.S. military. So you have the YPG supported by the U.S. military fighting against the Free Syrian Army and the Turkish Army, both of which are also supported by the U.S. military. So, well, first of all, it's a tragedy. That little enclave of Afrin is full of internally displaced people from other parts of the war zone in Syria. There are refugee camps. It's just a horrendous, like, humanitarian situation. And then you have U.S.-backed, U.S.-armed, U.S.-trained forces on both sides fighting against each other. That's not exactly where the U.S. forces themselves are, the the 2,000-plus U.S. military who are a little bit further east. But Turkey may well indeed travel further east. So then, you know, you would have the prospect of NATO member Turkey having its army directly confronting armed forces of NATO member the United States. How far do you think the Turkish president is willing to go with this? Because he did state over the weekend that he would do just that and that he would take all of the border areas from the YPG and the U.S. in in theory. And the foreign minister has a piece in the New York Times that America has chosen the wrong partner and urges the United States to flip, basically. How's the U.S. going to digest this? Um, With difficulty. (laughs) You know, part of what's happening is at a bureaucratic level, inside the military, you have something called UCOM, which is the European Command, which handles relationships with all NATO allies, including Turkey. And then you have something called CENTCOM, the Central Command, which handles relations with everything in the Middle East, apart from Turkey. So there are two different kind of bureaucracies in the US military, one of which has been working with the Kurds, and one of which continues to work very closely with Turkey, which is a a large and significant member of NATO. You know, you don't just blow them off. Some people last week were saying, you know, oh, the U.S. is about to turn its back on Turkey. The U.S. cannot turn its back on Turkey, either militarily or politically, although there are a lot of bilateral political problems right now. So once again, as has happened so many times in the past, the Kurds are going to get screwed. You know, there's no other way to put it. And they've been screwed this time, not only by the Turks, whom you would expect to do that, but also by the United States, which kind of you would expect to do that, but also by Russia, because Russia was present, had military observers present in that Western Kurdish enclave of Afrin, and withdrew them, which gave the Turks carte blanche to do whatever they wanted there. That's all part of the big geopolitics of what's going on. But because there is an interesting thing happening, I mean, has been happening for the last couple of years between Russia and Turkey, even though Turkey is still a member of NATO. I'm talking with Helena Cabin, and she's a Middle East analyst and writer, president of Just World Educational and We are both talking about what's happening in northeastern Syria, where the U.S.-backed YPG forces are fighting with Turkey. You know, it's hard to try to figure out all the players in this thing, but Iran seems to be a really big factor for the United States. And the idea that the U.S. was going to leave a fighting force and uh, help support the YPG seemed to be all about sticking it to Iran and not getting, you know, Iran too involved in Syria. How should we understand that part of the equation here? 
So Tillerson gave a speech at Stanford University more than 10 days ago when he laid out what the mission of this continuing U.S. force in Syria would be as the fight against ISIS winds down. He gave two or three things that it should do. One is to work with this new sort of umbrella organization called the Syrian Democratic Forces, which essentially is controlled by the Kurdish YPG and is the Kurdish YPG with a new skin on it. So one of the missions for the American military there, as Tillerson stated it, was to work with the Syrian Democratic Forces on border security. And that would have been Syria's border with Turkey, Syria's border with Iraq, It was a very scary thing for the Turks to hear that because it made it seem as though there was going to be like seamless impermeability or rather permeability between that part of Syria, which the Kurds call Rojava, and the Kurdish areas of eastern Turkey itself, which has the PKK in it. Another thing Tillerson said that part of the mission of the U.S. forces in Syria was to complete the overthrow of the Assad government. You know, this is a goal that Hillary Clinton had pushed for since 2011, and in pursuit of which she and the U.S. military and the CIA gave all kinds of support to a ragtag collection of many scores, perhaps even hundreds of different militias, all with you know funding and support from our Democratic friends in Saudi Arabia. Irony alert there, they are not democratic. Um, And it turned out that a lot of that support was actually going to al-Qaeda people in northern Syria. So John Kerry, a couple of years ago, kind of took regime change almost off the agenda in Syria. And Rex Tillerson very firmly put it back on in his speech a few days ago and said that that was amongst the missions of the 2,000-plus U.S. military people who are in Syria, and also countering Iranian influence in the region, which that little part of Kurdistan does not border Iran. I mean, the only way in which you could say it would counter Iranian influence, I guess, would be by continuing to work or returning to work on overthrowing the Assad government which is not going to happen. I mean, I think the Assad government has proven what I have said all along, which is that it has the support of the majority of Syrian people, has many problems, but that it's not going to be as easy to overthrow as, for example, Colonel Gaddafi in Libya. You know, his uh, positions collapsed very, very speedily. And we've seen what regime change brought to Libya, which has not been peace, democracy, well-being, women's rights. Regime change in Libya was disastrous. The uh, people who wanted regime change in Syria were not successful. The Syrian government, as is its right under international law, invited its allies to come and support it. So actually, the Iranian and Russian military help that's there in Syria is quite legitimate under international law, whereas the presence of U.S. troops has no legitimacy under international law at all. So they are very, very vulnerable and isolated, not just in military terms, because you know if you look at the map, 
it's like completely landlocked there. There's no way that they can get resupplied except by air, which is incredibly expensive and iffy. And they are sort of isolated in international law terms, international political terms as well. Absolutely. Now, if you're Assad, this is all pretty great, isn't it? I mean, you just watch everybody fight it out, and um, you don't really want to hold this territory anyway. You've got enough business elsewhere in uh, Syria that is uh, strategically interesting to you. These guys can fight it out, and then you can go pick it up another day. I think that's true. I think, obviously, President Assad will look at this and, and be delighted that this group of his enemies are fighting that group of his enemies. I don't agree that he you know, doesn't care about northeastern Syria. I think he does. There's a lot of good reasons to. It has oil. It has hydropower. It has good fertile land, Some, much of it, not all of it. And there is a kind of a degree to which he is proud of or would like to be able to defend the whole of the national borders. But as you say, he's got a lot of other priorities. One of the things that's happening, it's probably worth mentioning, is this conference that's happening in Sochi today yep. in southern Russia. The Russians have been working for the past few years in Syria in terms of trying to bring about a, a kind of a, a new governing formula between the dominant Arab parts of Syria and the minority Kurdish parts of Syria. So I was just looking at some of the paperwork for this conference that's happening in Sochi as we speak, and they refer to the Syrian Arab Republic slash the Syrian state, which means that they are actually prepared to kind of putting pressure on President Assad to take the word Arab out of the name of the state so that it would be more inclusive of people who are not Arab. The Russians have been doing some very interesting things diplomatically. Uh, the strategy looks to me like the Russians are just trying to get more and more people involved in their version of peace talks and woo them away from the UN-sponsored talks in Geneva uh, that haven't gone anywhere. And now they've got the UN uh, guy coming to their talks. They've got the Turks, they've got the uh, Iranians, and um, they've got some slice of the opposition coming. So they're actually accumulating diplomatic stuff. Absolutely. This conference in Sochi, I mean, I'm kind of amused that it's in Sochi because you remember four years ago, that was where the Winter Olympics are. So I'm sure they're using many of the same facilities. I saw pictures of the press center. It's like, oh, Sochi Olympics all over again. <laughs> and it's a different kind of an Olympics. You know, it's a uh, political Olympics and getting the UN special representative for Syria, Stefan de Mastura, to go, like that is the gold medal, I would say, that Putin and his very capable diplomats have won. It looks like an amazing conference to me. There are supposed to be 1,600 delegates. It strikes me that maybe, I think, 680 of those are from the Syrian government side, and maybe a, a similar number of seats have been set aside for people from the Syrian opposition side. It looks like a kind of a holiday camp thing, you know, 
you've had a horrible war there. Why don't you come and kick back in Sochi for a few days and we'll build the constituency for peace in the middle of our lovely conference facilities here, (laughs) which, you know, if if you've been fighting a, a really nasty war and you've seen your country destroyed, essentially, I mean, the humanitarian and just social family disruptions that have happened in Syria I think we need to keep them at the core of what we're thinking about when we're thinking about Syria. If you think of all those displaced people, those destroyed neighborhoods, that destroyed agricultural system, I mean, that all has to be rebuilt. So the next battle is going to be over rebuilding. And one of the things the Russians and their co-hosts in Sochi, who are Turkey and Iran, One of the things they want to do is to get the sanctions lifted ASAP so that Syria can start rebuilding. So what are the odds of some kind of success out of this conference or future conferences? Are they going to eventually call the shots that will make up a future Syrian entity? I don't think it's going to happen overnight. Um, This is part of a very, very long process. And, you know, if Rex Tillerson and the whole of the U.S. administration is returning to a stance of insisting on Assad must go before there can be peace talks, then it's, from my perspective, very bad news because Assad is not going anywhere. So if you want to have peace talks, he and his government have to be included I mean, it wasn't easy or fun for the African National Congress in South Africa, for example, to engage in peace talks with the apartheid government, which had done just terrible things to all the black community for 40 years. But that was the only way that the ANC got out of the situation of apartheid and oppression was by talking to the government in power. So, you know, if people in Syria want to have just some breathing room from this horrible war and then some prospect that, you know, normal economic systems can be restored and the schools can reopen in in the shattered areas, then they're going to have to talk with the government. And, you know, that is the fact of life. But in this case, in in your analogy, the, the South Africans won and they got the white South Africans out of power. But in this situation, there's no guarantee that they can get Assad out of power if they come to these talks. In fact, it sounds like they're going to keep him in. That's true. But, you know, when the uh, the white South Africans agreed to this process that would involve negotiations, they thought they would win. And it was done through elections it was the key to that. So if you can have free and fair elections, now the, that's what the UN says they want to have, elections that would be every Syrian citizen, including those who are currently in diaspora, in, in exile. If you can have the free and fair elections, let the best person win, if you like. It will be a man, I'm almost certain. But the Assad government has agreed to that. You know, there will be elections, but they insist that the ruling Ba'ath Party be allowed to participate in those elections. It's Washington and the Saudi Arabian government and everybody who's been supporting the opposition so strongly who said, no, Assad and the Ba'ath Party cannot participate. So Turkey has shifted on that. And that's something that the Russians have achieved is getting Turkey to back off from the regime change agenda. 
I think what we're seeing at a big level is very slowly over this issue, the ability of Washington to dominate everything that the United Nations does is eroding. And you've got China and, and Russia are two members of permanent members of the Security Council. They are in, definitely in support of this process of all party negotiations, all party, including the Ba'ath Party. The United States is very opposed right now, but maybe wobbly. I mean, John Kerry indicated some flexibility on whether the Ba'ath and Assad could participate. I think it's the French who are the ones who are strongest in the, you know, Assad must go camp at the present. To me, you know, I grew up in, a, in the era of anti-imperialism, of the collapse of white empires in England. And it was quite natural that, to me, growing up, that people who were not white might have self-determination and be able to d determine who their own government was. I'm afraid there are still some people in France who think, and in this country, who think that white countries get to determine who rules in other countries. It's sad. Obviously, there are massive human rights problems in a country like Syria, but you don't resolve them by sending in foreign armies like a sort of Bay of Pigs type thing, which sadly is, is what you've got. But at least in the Bay of Pigs, the CIA fighters had a, you know, an easy way out and could get out by boat back to Miami or wherever they'd come from, most of them. The 2,000-plus American fighters who are there in northeastern Syria have no easy out, um, though I guess they could get out through Iraqi Kurdistan um, if they had to. But it's just crazy, this idea that because we are white, we get to determine who rules in other countries. <laughs> To me, that's, that's the crazy thing. Yep. Uh, Helena Cobbin is a Middle East analyst and writer, and she's president of Just World Educational. Thanks for joining us talking about uh, Syria and what's happening in northeast Syria. And tell us something about Just World Educational. What, what is this now? So this is a nonprofit that uh, friends of mine and I started a couple of years ago. We try to do in real life educational events all around the United States, looking at issues of war, peace, justice, and the Middle East, because all of us have a particular concern about the Middle East. And then we also are building up our website, which is www.justworldeducational.org to be a kind of, not just for people in the United States, but also people around the world to be a resource Obviously, we need more funding, so if any of your listeners want to donate, just head over to the website. Helena, thanks a lot for joining us again and trying to sort out what is going on in Syria. Thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Good to be back, Jerome. In 1942, most all of Gandhi's colleagues were jailed after he put out the call to quit India. We'll recall the nonviolent push for independence after the break. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview from WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. In 1942, Gandhi called on all Indians to rise up in nonviolent resistance to British rule in what became known as the Quit India Movement. For the BBC program Witness, Lucy Burns speaks to a veteran of the campaign. It's the summer of 1942 and there's rebellion in the air in British India. Independence is a basic human instinct to be free. If I did not aspire to independence, then there's something wrong with me. S.P. Vittal is a student in the second year of his degree in the city of Mysore in southern India. And he's just one of millions of young Indians with a newly emerging political consciousness. Under the British rule, we were all slaves. We were all madly afraid of the Englishman. And then there were reports of shooting. Innocent people and all that, riots and people getting imprisoned, and national leaders going in and out of jail. Vittal was inspired by a national movement campaigning for Indian independence, led by charismatic figures like Jawaharlal Nehru and Mohandas Gandhi, known as Gandhiji. Every day their speeches used to be reported in the press, and we were never missing those things. I was greatly inspired. I wanted to do something, but I did not know what to do, how to go about it. On August the 8th, 1942, Gandhi made a speech in Bombay, now Mumbai, to launch the Quit India movement. He called on all Indians to resist British rule through non-violent protest. Truth and non-violence were the two key words for Gandhiji, very dear to him. So we also followed. Even if somebody beat us, we did not react violently. Violence cannot meet violence. As the Quit India message began to spread, strikes and demonstrations took place in many areas and the British attempted to suppress the protest by arresting thousands of people. World War II was at its height and the British were afraid that Indian independence would weaken the Allied fight against the Japanese. Negotiations over independence between Britain and Indian Congress leaders had stalled as British officer Sir Stafford Cripps complained. Mr Gandhi has demanded that we should walk out of India, leaving the country with its deep-rooted religious divisions, without any constitutional form of government and with no organised administration. No responsible government could take such a step, least of all in the midst of war. To have agreed to the Congress party or to Mr Gandhi's demands would have meant inevitable chaos and disorder. This is not merely my assertion. It is stated by Mr Gandhi himself. Quite recently he has said, anarchy is the only way, but I tell the British to give us chaos. Vittel's role in the student campaign came to a head when he was invited to speak at a public rally outside the university. There was big support for when I came on the rostrum, because they were accustomed to listening to me, so they expected a fiery speech, which I delivered. I did not disappoint them. At the end of each sentence, there was a very loud applause. Perhaps there would have been about 10,000 students applauding every sentence that criticised the British government, that criticised the state government, and how they were slavishly obeying the orders from London, and that all the important posts were by the British people, all by Indians who were just obeying them like slaves. The police and all the people who were all their henchmen, they were furious at listening to my speech, and then dragged me outside and put me into the police van and took me to the police station and from there I moved on to the jail. The British government and their Indian representatives were keen to make an example of the troublemakers. 
I was tried in the court on two offenses that I spoke against the British government and the state government. And the magistrate asked me whether I was guilty. I said, how can you ask such a foolish question? I consider myself as an independent citizen, a free Indian here. You are trying me because you have got jaundice dice. You see everything yellow. You also see me as yellow. If you are a true Indian, you must resign your job and join me in this fight against the British. I am a free citizen. You can give me any amount of punishment. I will bear it. Which infuriated him. And he sentenced me to nine months vigorous imprisonment and four months and 100 rupee fine. So total nine plus four, 13 months vigorous imprisonment I got. There is no question of paying any fine. First, because I did not have the money. And secondly, I did not want to pay the government any money. Prison was an intimidating experience for the young literature student. It is a very dangerous place, particularly youngsters like me, 18-year-old youngster, fair, very fair and all that. I ran a very big risk in jail. Luckily, by God's grace, no physical harm came to me at that time, but the mental agony continued. And Vittal's family was against what he was doing. Like many Indians, after spending all their lives under British rule, they had come to believe the colonialist line that the British were naturally superior. My mother was very unhappy that I went to jail. My father was very, not only unhappy, he was very angry that I spoke against the government. He said that I had ruined myself, that I can never get a government job. He thought the British rule was perpetual and there is no question of independence. He said, it's all rubbish speaking against the British. They only know how to administer. You Indians do not know how to do it. That's what my father was talking, though he was himself an Indian. But Vittal and his fellow campaigners in prison were confident in their cause. We knew we had the backing of the entire country. It was this kind of confidence that made us face anything in jail also. People were getting arrested, particularly students. Whoever spoke out or did something against the British government, they were promptly imprisoned and brought to the central jail, which was the biggest jail at that time. Everybody who came to the jail was supporting us. After 13 months in jail, S.P. Vittel was released under an amnesty for student prisoners. He took his university exams and graduated with top marks. On his return to his hometown of Mysore, he was celebrated as a returning freedom fighter. All the top leaders of Mysore state... They visited my house. They were very friendly with me in particular. And the whole street used to be aware that leaders are visiting the house of Mr. Vittal. And they were saying, what is this magic? These people are so big people. They are all coming to his house. Such an ordinary man. And I was very lucky to get the friendship of these top people. 1942 was the high point of open public protest against British rule in India. But negotiations between the British and Indian independence leaders continued. India became independent at the stroke of midnight on the 15th of August 1947, marked by a famous speech by new Prime Minister Jawaharlal Nehru. Long years ago, we made a tryst with destiny. And now the time comes when we shall redeem our pledge. At the stroke of the midnight hour, when the world sleeps, India will awake to life and freedom. We were all overjoyed. We were all awake the whole night to listen to his thing. And that thrilled us, as the independence movement had thrilled us earlier. 
even to listen to him. It is a great experience. S.P. Vettel is proud of his part in India's freedom struggle. If I had not participated in the freedom struggle, I would have felt a lot of regret that I missed an opportunity of a lifetime. And though my contribution was infinitely small, the satisfaction is that I had got the courage to participate and make the tiny contribution. I'm being an ordinary common person. Perhaps I could not have done more than what I did. S.P. Vittal went on to work for All India Radio, where he rose to be a senior director. Witness was written and presented by Lucy Burns. Coming up after the break, we'll discuss the great food of India. I'll talk with one of the founders of India House Restaurants. I'm Jerome McDonald, and you're listening to Worldview from WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. One of the great ways the restaurant scene in these parts has changed in recent decades can be summed up with two words, Indian food. For Chicago Restaurant Week, we thought we'd look back on one of the pioneer, with one of the pioneers of popularizing Indian food here in these parts. India House has been on the scene since the early 90s. They have a lunch buffet in full swing up the street on Grand Avenue, but they started in the suburbs in Schomburg and Hoffman Estates. With me is India House founder Jagmohan Jayara. Nice to meet you. Thanks for coming. Good afternoon. Yeah, yeah, I can't tell you how many times we have run out of here after the show to bolt up the street to your buffet at India House. It's always terrific, and um, it's great to meet you. Great to meet you, sir. Tell us a little about yourself. You're originally from Delhi. Yes, I am from Delhi. I came to United States in 1985, lived in Denver. Now, your dad was a chef? My dad was a chef. And he had, he had come first? He had come first in 1972. And where did he end up working? He was working in Gaylord, India, in Chicago, and then also uh, another in Another terrific mainstay here? Yes, yes. And, um, and so you came after, after – you were about 18 when you came? Yes, I was, I was 18. And what was uh, your intention? How did you, what did you think would happen? didn't know much about America till I <laughs> landed here. And he started working with my father as his assistant and worked in Chicago about five, six years and up in Rogers Park area. There was a fine Indian restaurant, Gandhi, that time. In 1993, I decided to open my own restaurant. And you, you went out to the suburbs to do it? Yes, because that time uh, uh, most of Indian was leaving city of Chicago and was moving toward the uh, suburban area, and there was none uh, Indian restaurant there at that time. I imagine, did you think you were going to be able to make the restaurant fly on strictly 
Indian immigrants, or did you think, I am going to have to get other people from Schaumburg to come to this restaurant? Well, at the beginning, was uh, for me, was great support for uh, Indian only, but I had to uh, do where everybody come and try Indian food. And it was overwhelmingly received in the Schaumburg area, uh, not only by Indian, but other uh, other people too. What did it mean for the community to have uh, a place like this? I, uh, their Indian weddings are a big deal, and, and you um, catered them. You uh, provided banquet facilities. Yes, we do. Actually, we are one of the largest uh, catering house in Chicagoland area. And we also have two large banquet facilities that serves Indian community. After opening a restaurant in 1993, I opened a banquet and a restaurant facility in Schaumburg, which was that time was the largest Indian banquet hall, about 1,000 people. So there was a place for Indian to go and do their uh, parties, birthday, weddings, reception. And so it was uh, overwhelmingly received by Indian community. I imagine that's um, a pretty satisfying thing to be able to, you know, provide something that was really needed. I, I've got friends uh, who got married, uh, a, you know, a long time ago in the 80s here, and they talk about uh, having to just procure the ingredients for the Indian food and then make it themselves. And then uh, they they were doing it, they were practically doing it by hand. And then these were facilities that. Uh, people were able to you know, go to and just in a in a heartbeat get it all. Yes, it was big risk. And back in 1998, when we opened a banquet hall, uh, till early 19 was like a hundred gathering of 100 Indian, a uh, hundred people of Indian parties. It was a big deal. But slowly as the community grow, you know, now we do an event like 1,000 people or 800 or 500 people. You know, if we have a less than 500 people, we don't think it's an Indian party. <laughs> I'm talking with the founder of India House, Jagmohan Jayara, and we're discussing uh, Indian food in these parts and, and the evolution of what's happened here. Um, so, so you've been able to uh, put that beachhead out there in Schaumburg, and then you came back into the city for, for the place on Grand Avenue, and, and you had a bunch of facilities in other places too. Yes, I wanted to have a four restaurant at four corner of the Chicago, so we opened up a restaurant in Devon everywhere I had worked. We opened a restaurant in downtown, then we had in Oak Brook, Buffalo Grove, Schaumburg area. So the, the India House has been a, a pioneer in Indian food in Chicago area for the last 24 years. And so the idea was behind that, you know, have an Indian food in every corner of Chicago. And that certainly transpired. It, it's everywhere now. Yes, sir. How would you rate the literacy of the general Chicago population on Indian food? Because I imagine there's a lot of people who really love it, but there seems to be a big chunk of people who don't really eat it yet. Yes. Uh, actually, right now, I would say that when I started a restaurant in 1993, maybe 10 to 15 percent people had tried Indian food. Right now, I hear is somewhere around 30 to 35 percent of Chicagoan has tried Indian food, and conception about Indian food was uh, not well received at the early 90s. You know, it's, uh, it's spicy, it's a lot of oil, but that's not a true as you are a regular customer at the India House. So. Uh, 
it took a little bit of education, little bit of, you know, now you have Indian restaurant every corner of Chicago, every suburb has Indian restaurant, and they're all doing very well. Um, what kind of things made your menu different than any uh, Indian restaurants or in the other ones? Was there a way to get an edge there? Yes. Uh, when I started Indian restaurant, there was a few restaurants in Diwan Avenue and a few restaurants in downtown Chicago. And most of them have a limited menu, you know. They were either serving Delhi-style food or either they were some serving a Bombay-style food. And you could just have a basic tandoori chicken or lamb or chicken or few kinds of bread. So we went and we, right now we serve close to 150 different dishes from all parts of northern India or southern India. And then we have a catering menu which extends about 250 items. So we we actually, you know, every, like you know that we have a tandoori item and we have curry item and we have appetizers items. So we broadened the menu and gave people more choices to pick from, you know, where there was just a few items back in 90s or early 80s in the restaurant. Are there things um, that you think the the Indian community looks for, and things that uh, the rest of the the restaurant people? I mean, people always tease the British about the chicken tikka masala being the national dish and stuff. Is there a is there a kind of a Chicago national dish for India? Yes, uh, in a wedding time when we cater to Indian uh, functions, the they want a regional food for their wedding, which is their, you know, you can have a Gujarati, you can have a Punjabi, but uh, uh, Resmi Kebab is, we started, India House started as our customer are familiar with that. This is a very popular dish. Till I opened a India House, there was nobody was serving Resmi Kebab in Chicago or for that matter, in even in the United States. So those are the few dishes I can say Resmi Kebab or Chicken 65 is original Chicago dish, which is India House created. Uh, what, what's that exactly? The resume kebab is uh, marinated with the um, sour cream and yogurt, and it has a little bit ginger and garlic, and it's not as spicy at all. It's a very mild dish in tandoori side. And then there's a chicken 65, which is a roasted chicken and folded in uh, tomato and onion sauce, and it kind of has a little bit kick to it, a little spicier than the resume kebab. Indian food is uh, something that has developed over hundreds and hundreds of yeah, over centuries. Uh, and people in India look at at, at food as medicine, that, that, that there is a philosophy behind it that is uh, medicinal. Um, do you think people here in the United States are, are uh, taking in the, the full brunt of uh, what Indian food really means to Indian culture. Yes, uh, you know, our spices are, we grind our spice, freshly grind spices. In fact, the turmeric is said to be a healer for all kinds of, if you add a yep. turmeric in the milk, if you have a, you know. Uh, so there's something to the Indian spices that, you know, is, people can take as a medicine. And... Um, I'm talking with uh, the India House founder, Jagmohan Jayara, and we're discussing Indian food and how Indian food has uh, developed here in the United States and in the Chicago area. And uh, it's Chicago Restaurant Week, and we love Indian food, so we're talking about Indian food here. Um, did um, 
How has the community changed over the years, the Indian community that you serve? I imagine they have lots more choices now, and uh, there's uh, there's different banquet facilities now. Uh, you've seen a lot of people you've uh, worked with at India House go on and uh, start their own projects. Uh, there's kind of some interesting growth. Yes. Uh, if you look at the Chicagoland area, most of the restaurants that have opened in suburb beside the Gaylord, I would say that most of these people had worked with India House and they have gone and opened a successful restaurant in all around the suburb. Um, it is, uh, you know, as you know, the Indian food or every food is changing, constantly changing. So there's a big competition everywhere. Everybody now, it, Indian restaurants are focusing on a regional cuisine. You know, you could have a South Indian restaurant, you could have a, a North Indian restaurant, you could have a Gujarati restaurant. So as the community is changing, the demand for the regional cuisine is more and more. Uh, you interestingly went a different direction and opened up a restaurant in uh, in Hoffman Estates, Bombay Chopsticks, and you went fusion with a Chinese India fusion restaurant. Yes, I did. Uh, in back home, Chinese food is very popular, but. Uh when I was in India, every every hotel had a Chinese restaurant. Yes, in it, every single one. Yes, and so we, there was a big demand for Indian Chinese. The being that that lot of our people don't eat pork, and so we we don't serve any pork. Plus, the spice level is totally different than what Chinese restaurants serve. And it's a very popular restaurant. Please come and try it. You know, we are very successful up in Hopman State, and it's called Bombay Chopstick. Uh, it's uh, Indian Chinese food. Uh, how did you do that? Did you have to practice for a while? Did you get another uh, chef, a Chinese chef, to work with you? Uh, yes, we did got a, a Chinese, in, Indian uh, gentleman from India, uh, and he started this concept. My cousin brother also does an Indian. He is the chef there at the Bombay Chopstick. Uh, he had experience in Indian Chinese back in home. As you say, that most of the hotel serves uh, Indian Chinese food. Uh, it, it's. What do you think the future is like for Indian food in this region? Um, it, can can in, can it grow? Can you get to the other seventy percent of people who have not had uh, Indian food? Uh, a future is. Uh, bright for Indian food. As long as the people who go and try Indian food for first time, uh, just try very simple or even go for the buffet. Once you go there for three, four time and you get used to a spices, then, then you will like it. But if you go to Indian restaurant for first time and you order a bindaloo and you order some of the spices, this you're not going to like it and you're going to say, oh, this is not what I was expecting. Um, well, Indian food's great, and I, we love going to India House uh, after our after our program, and uh, you know certainly the buffet is terrific. And I really uh, appreciate you coming and in you know knock yourself out for Chicago Restaurant Week and everything. I, I imagine a lot of people are doing specials and deals and everything. Yes, uh, they are. We have a lunch special uh, in Chicago seven days a week, uh, eleven to three. Please come and try. And that's the best way to introduce yourself to the Indian food. 
Jagmohan Jayara is the founder of India House Restaurants. They have the uh, outlet here on Grand Avenue and then banquet facilities in Schomburg, a restaurant in Hoffman Estates, and Bombay Chopsticks as well, the fusion restaurant with Indian and Chinese food. Thanks a lot for joining us, and congratulations on your success. Thank you, sir. Tomorrow on Worldview, we are going to talk about Antarctica. It's actually summer in Antarctica right now, and we are going to talk with a travel expert who's been taking people to Antarctica to see Antarctica before climate change makes it entirely different. We will talk about that experience tomorrow on Worldview. We're also going to be talking about China. Uh, You might have thought that the United States is accumulating a lot of economic data on you and using it to form credit scores and all the rest. But imagine what that's like in China. In China, they are using credit scores to manipulate and change the uh, population. We are going to talk about that tomorrow on Worldview. Hope you can join us then. Worldview is produced by Steve Bynum and Julian Haida. Thanks to Anna Waters and Galilee Abdullah for production assistance. Thanks to Mike Gilmore for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.